Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. You know, I guess just about the most popular sport in the world, everywhere in the world, is fishing. You hear a lot of discussion among American sportsmen, which is better, the dry fly or the wet fly, still fishing or trolling, lake, stream, or ocean. Everyone has his own ideas about this sport of fishing, and he goes after it in his own way. Well, that's true all over the world. As our servicemen have observed, there are a lot of different ways of catching fish. In Borneo, for example, the natives crush the berries of a certain shrub, and the juice poisons the fish of a river without spoiling them as food. In Africa, South America, and Alaska, the spear or harpoon is used. In Japan, trained birds called cormorants are sent diving down into the water to bring up fish. In some Pacific islands, nets are used. In others, the bow and arrow is the favorite method of getting fish for supper. Well, what's true about fishing is true about other customs and traditions around the world. A way of doing things may be different, but the ideals are the same. No one way is right or wrong. It's just what suits the individuals best. These customs are important to the people who follow them. And our servicemen are helping to maintain goodwill by observing the customs of other people in other lands. Welcome to episode 17 of Open Ears, Maine. It is Thursday, June 4th, 2020. This time tomorrow, Donald Trump will have visited Maine, come and gone, thankfully. I gotta say, this is one case where I'm glad that an out-of-state disease vector doesn't obey the state's 14-day quarantine. On today's show, Our guest is Reza Jalali, an activist, writer, and humanitarian, to discuss the local protest in response to George Floyd's murder, along with information on how COVID-19 is impacting Maine's immigrant and refugee communities. I'm your host, Crash Berry. Do you enjoy true crime podcasts? If so, please check out Devils and Dirtbags. That's my 13-part investigation of the child-molesting priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts, which starts and ends with the murder of a 13-year-old altar boy in the spring of 1972. The sole suspect, 
a parish priest. It's a sad, sad story that needs telling. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com to listen or download the show wherever you download, but only if you want to be even more discouraged by the abject power wielded by institutions. And now the numbers. According to Maine's Center for Disease Control, there have been 2,446 cases connected to the coronavirus in Maine. At least 95 Mainers have died with COVID-19, and to date, 1,739 residents have recovered from the illness. According to recent reports and state data, one in four of those deaths were of Mainers of color. Another factoid, Mainers of color are 10 times more likely to contract COVID-19, despite making up less than 2% of the population. On today's show, we'll hear how the virus is impacting Maine's immigrants and refugees. Coming up next is a conversation with Reza Jalali, humanitarian, writer, and Mainer. Have you ever asked a naturalized American how he or she feels about the business of voting? If you have, it's probably given you a whole new slant on the matter. To those men and women who were born in other countries, the right to vote is a precious privilege, and they line up before the voting booth on Election Day with the same high sense of pride and responsibility that one might feel upon being awarded some rare degree. Actually, the right to vote should give us all the same heady thrill. It is we... You and I, who determine the course of our country and the conditions of our own lives, with those votes we cast on Election Day. Just one reminder, make sure your opinions will be counted. Make sure you cast your vote by being very sure to register. Registration days differ in varying localities. Check on the time in your community and get your name on the rolls. Then take advantage of all of America's media of communication for informing yourself on the issues involved. And then when Election Day comes... Go to the polls with pride and responsibility and vote. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now is Reza Jalali, a scholar, an educator, a writer, an activist, and a humanitarian. Reza came to the United States as a political refugee back in the 1980s. He was born and raised in the Kurdistan province of Iran and went to college in India. For the last couple of decades, Reza has worked at the University of Southern Maine, serving as coordinator of multicultural student affairs. But these days, he teaches as an adjunct professor and is now the special advisor to the president on diversity. Most importantly, though, he's a writer and a very good one and a witness to much sadness and sometimes I'd say joy. He's a very modest and humble fellow, but I got to say I'm a major league fan of the dude. So without any further ado, Reza Jalali, welcome to Open Ears, Maine. Hi there. Um, I feel humbled. This is a great <laughs> introduction. Thank you. It's been a very sad week in America. The murder of George Floyd has shown once again that black men, especially, are often the target of excessive force and brutality by police. Reza, I know you're active in the Portland activist community, working with many diverse groups, and there have been five of the largest street demonstrations I've ever seen in Portland this week. What have you been doing in terms of organizing and advising other organizers and groups? Well, I want to tell you it's been a sad 400 years. 
for blacks in America. But in Portland, Maine, I'm really thrilled to see so many peaceful demonstrations. And more than the size of the the protest, it's really the quality. Um, For the first time, I think, I'm seeing many, many young persons of all kinds of cultures, different races, ethnicities, rich and poor, black and brown, they're walking together and maintaining, of course, the social distancing. And many of them wearing the masks. But that's really what is so different than the protest, uh, the many protests that I have been part of, I have organized in the past. So, and to answer your question, I'm getting old, so I am taking the back seat. And it's amazing to watch my students, in particular students of color. These are young men and women who graduated from my university, and now they are the leaders in the community. So they're the ones who are organizing this amazing protest. Hamdia Ahmed is, is one of them, a good example. So I'm, I'm watching them, and, and uh, am I surprised to watch them uh, as leaders? Of course not. I mean, that's what higher education is about. We transform lives. They come to us and they have many questions and they're curious. And in most cases, not always, we try to turn them into leaders. And many of them would become national leaders. Quite a few of them become state leaders and then regional. And then a few manage to stay back in Portland and become local leaders. So that's really where I have been. So I could say that I have retired from organizing marches, but I'm there with them and and, and watching them uh, lead, really lead and, and do what we used to do a generation before. Well, that's very reassuring to hear you say that. I'm an old white guy, as far as I'm concerned. My voice is not that important in this, so I'm very excited to hear about the young leaders. And I know there are a lot of great young men and women in Portland who are very spirited and very intelligent. Unfortunately, this has to happen to kind of bring them together. How would you describe the attitude of these young leaders? Well, many of them are impatient. Many of them want the change to happen yesterday, and and I'm with them. Uh, Just to remind all of us that we have been engaged in these battles for for decades. When I came to Portland, Maine as a refugee in 1985, I think the very first week, might have been the first few days, I was on Commercial Street with a friend, I mean, there were only two of us, holding a sign which said, uh, stop Iran-Iraq war. This was in 1985, and a war between Iran and neighboring Iraq was going on with the war turning its face uh, the other way and, and watching these two nations destroy, be destroyed, and, and a very long and bloody war that left uh, a million people uh, killed and millions wounded on both sides of the border. So it, this, this battle for equity, for racial equality, and, and for the rights of our, our gay brothers and sisters also have been going on for a very, very long time. So they're very impatient, the new leadership. Uh, 
and they are more confident, I would say, than 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 I was, at least my count, myself and my counterparts. And they are very savvy. And of course, it's so the role of social media. I mean, back then, I had to sit by the phone and call 10 friends and ask them to call the other 10 friends. If you recall, we used to have the, uh, I think we called it the tree phone, the phone tree, I'm sorry. Phone tree, uh, yes. Phone tree. So as activists, you would call phone tree such a foreign concept when you think about it. You would call five, and those five each had to call another five. Now, all it takes is uh, just sending one message, and you would have a few hundred, if not thousands of people who would read it, and, and you hope many of them would join you. So they're very savvy, and they're well-informed. The other thing, they're very global, because we're talking about a leadership that's very transnational. And uh, when I joined uh, the group of the Army of Peaceful Activists in this community, there were one or two of us who had lived outside of this country, who had been engaged in other kinds of protests against oppressive regimes elsewhere. And now you have members and leaders who have seen their fathers, their mothers, and in many cases, they themselves have have been fighting um, intolerance and, and hatred and, and oppression and in countries such as South Sudan or Somalia or Cambodia and or Kosovo. And, uh, and now they find themselves to do the same in this country. So it's very global, uh, the transnational with one foot in one world and another in the United States. And, and I think that gives them this level of uh, wisdom and maturity that, that we very much need. This is not to downplay the roles of the so-called white protesters. Absolutely not. The solidarity that I see between these kids uh, when I watch them uh, march in streets of Portland, and in most cases I must add very peacefully, uh, is how multicultural, multi-generational they can be. So you have kids who are, who belong to low-income main communities and uh, walking next to the Somali who was forced to leave his or her homeland. And in some cases, we have to admit because of international politics, uh, and they're wa- walking next to this trans kid who doesn't feel safe uh, in this community. And that's a shame for us all. Next to this person who has experienced homelessness, next to a kid who comes from a well-to-do family in, in one of the suburbs of Portland. So again, it, it's really, the, the, it's a, it, it knows no race, uh, no class, and no gender. And uh, it's it's powerful. It's amazing, and and it makes me feel good. In fact, I'm <laughs> I'm not as, as skeptical as I used to be in some cases. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think to be honest with you, we manage. And I talk about myself and my generation. We broke the world, or the world was given to us already broken, and then we re rebroke it. 
in 2016, I would argue. And now these are the ones who are trying to repair it and fix it. Again, uh, you're making me feel very reassured because I have to admit, I've been very angry about everything that's going on on this planet. And to hear that we have impatient, confident, media savvy, global young leaders among us and taking the lead is heartening to me. So I'm glad that I'm talking to you because I think you're improving my immediate outlook. How many of the street protests in Portland this week did you attend? I didn't attend that many. I'm actually having a facing a deadline and I'm engaged in a writing project and I have to sit and write. And, but I've been watching, watching them. And, and uh, my daughter goes to, has been to all of them and she comes back and gives me a full report. So I've only been to two. But of all the things that I said about this group of, uh, protesters. And by the way, I'm happy that I'm making you feel better. It's a sunny day. I mean, if you had to catch me on a rainy day, I might have not been that optimistic. But seriously, one thing I, I neglected to mention, they're also very fearless. And I, and I love that. And we need that. Well, let's talk about fearlessness, but also let's talk about uh, violence and anarchy. Uh, there have been some reports of you know windows broken, I saw a social media post of a, of a Portland cop allegedly claiming that a protester had thrown what looked to be a, a tiny slab of concrete at him. Have you heard uh, from the street if there was anything like that? And what does the community do in response to the anarchists who are possibly invading the scene? I can speak for the leadership for those who are organizing this protest. But I can tell you this, that uh, most of them, if not all of them, are peaceful protesters. But also I'm old enough to know that in any cases, in, in things like this, there are always the troublemakers. There are the few individuals. I wouldn't even call them bad apples because who am I to judge them? They're angry. But there are always a few individuals who, unfortunately, and that's my own personal opinion, that unfortunately get, get to engage in, in somewhat criminal activities. But we have to be careful when we say looters. We have to define that to a young person who's angry enough to smash a plate glass window. And if we were to call that person a looter, what would we call people who are um, not paying the fair shares of taxes to this nation. Are they also looters? So it's really important to, it's easy to stereotype and, 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 and be angry with the quote unquote looters. And, and there are times I find myself worried that they are giving a bad name to the majority of uh, peaceful protesters were there really to teach us how to be inclusive, how to be accepting, how to create change in a peaceful way. So again, it's one of those, there's a tension between my desire to see all these demonstrations go very peacefully and then being forced to watch uh, that there are a few criminals, or a few very angry young persons are not so young. So again, I'm careful really to not to take sides. And experience has shown that, that 
that uh, not only in addition to having a few bad elements, uh, who are using these opportunities created by the hard work and dedication and sacrifices of these uh, wonderful organizers to, to engage in, in criminal activities. But at the same time, I, I can tell you that I come from a country, from a region in the world, where in every demonstration that I have been involved or participated or heard about, there were also some organized criminal activities. So there were people from, from the other side who would come and, and cause trouble. Now, is this one of those cases? I, I don't have any proof, but I have to be mindful of that reality, too. And to be clear, I don't view the breaking of plate glass windows as looting. I don't think there's been any reports, or I haven't heard any reports of actual looting, which uh, usually involves stealing products. But I agree wholeheartedly that the the real looters in America, for instance, Bath Ironworks or Amazon.com or all these corporate entities that really are looting, they're the real looters. Have you heard any talk of any arrests? connected to this week's demonstrations? Well, I haven't, and I think you explained why we haven't. I think you're absolutely correct in, in, in saying that there, has been, there hasn't been any looting. So the, the one case I heard, and I did mention it, was that there was a business uh, plate glass window smashed, but that, that was it, and it ended there. So is that the reason why we haven't had any arrests, perhaps? Uh, but again, it's really important that uh, to, to acknowledge that Portland, Maine is a peaceful community. And, and, and we have to have to uh, give some credit to those marching and those who are in charge of protecting the marchers. So I think it, it, it's, it's important to uh, to know that some of the things that go wrong or have gone wrong in other communities, and rather than blaming one side, it's important to look at that community and ask some hard questions. I mean, what is the level of anger? Uh, how did the police behave in those communities? Were that really pushing the people to misbehave? And uh, what's the history of, of police and community relationship in that community. So there's so many factors. And I don't like it when, when some parts of the media, the biased media outlets, try to have this one-size-fits-all and divide these groups into looters, which is such a horrible and, and really inaccurate term, and, and protesters. It's much more complicated than that. And uh, so in Portland, Maine, for example, we haven't seen any any looting, and hopefully we won't, because part of it is is we we live in a somewhat a caring community, and uh, and and people who are coming pouring out into the streets are wonderful activists, community members who are demanding change, and they are mature enough, they're really aware that one way to achieve that would be by peaceful means and really walking shoulder to shoulder with one another and taking care of each other. So if they see one who's, who's trying to cause trouble, I think it's the, 
marchers themselves who, who would stop that person from, from doing anything and harming the movement. So they're almost self-policing in that way. We're talking about police. How do you view the relationship between the immigrants and refugee communities and the police community? It's really complicated. And there were times that the relationship was horrible. And, and we used to have a police chief, I would not name, who uh, liked it that way. He was one of those who believed in divide and conquer. I mean, he was very old-fashioned. And when he was the chief, sadly, the Portland Police Department had a very negative and, and terrible relationship with the immigrant communities. And this was way, way back, I would say, in the mid-90s. And, and I was one of those, a few of us, who would try to bring the chief, uh, the then chief, to meet and engage the community. And there were very few immigrants back then, not as many as we have now. And, and there weren't many from different parts of Africa, mostly uh, the immigrants back then uh, belonged to Vietnam, Cambodia, and, and a few other countries. And, and we would try to facilitate community conversation. And I was one of those that would go to the chief, would go to the city manager. And, and by the way, risking my own really not physical safety, but soon I became the troublemaker. And uh, <laughs> yes, and 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 uh, and then I found out that there was really tension between the city manager, between city hall, and and the police department, and we. As the community members, in particular, we, the new ones, the new mainers, were paying the price. And so it, it didn't lead anywhere. And the dehumanization of the immigrant community continued. I mean, this particular chief would, would publicly make statements about uh, young Southeast Asian kids who, whose parents had brought them as children to this country fleeing violence and, and conflicts would accuse them of, of being violent, quote-unquote, belonging to, quote-unquote, gangs. And those of us who are working with these communities closely, intimately, knew that that wasn't true. We really didn't have any so-called gangs in Portland. There were some gangs, perhaps, in, in a community outside of Boston. So the relationship improved once he left. And, and subsequently, it, it was really improved. It got much better, much better. And, but there have been some hiccups. There have been some issues in particular involving one particular community, which has really paid dearly for having a negative relationship with the police. And that's the Sudanese, the local Sudanese-American community uh, feels very victimized by, by the p local police. And, and I have gone and met with both sides and I've offered my services. And, uh, and at, at some point we have reached somewhere, but the young Sudanese, and I had many of them, I've had many of them as, as my students would complain to me that they didn't feel safe in Portland and, and they feared the local police. And that, that was heartbreaking because, again, the police department, the mission is to protect us. I think that's what Portland Police Department's slogan is, protecting a great city or something like that. It's my tax money, your tax money. So it was heartbreaking to see that there were young Sudanese 
uh, new Mainers who didn't feel safe. If they didn't feel safe in Portland, I couldn't feel safe in Portland. And I have many, many privileges. For one thing, I'm not black. I'm a person of color, but my skin color is not exactly black. And I could pass, perhaps, for, for someone else. Really, it's, been, it's, been, it's gone up and down. And uh, in general, it's much, much, much better than, say, in the early 90s. Much, much better. And they are accessible. The leadership of the police department and city hall is very accessible. So we can actually go and complain to them and feel almost hurt. Uh, that wasn't the case in the 90s. The city hall would listen to us, but they had absolutely no power, it seemed, to us at least, over the, the, the police department. So things have got better. I think uh, city hall and the police department work together as they should be. We also have now persons of color uh, elected to city council. So that absolutely helps. And that's a change that we were waiting for when I came to this community, that one day, one day we would see uh, city councilors, the state reps who actually look, would look like us and would understand us and could relate to, to the issues we were facing on a daily basis. I'm also careful to note that, that there would be individuals who would totally disagree with me. There would be some of my own students who have lots of respect for them, and they would disagree with me and, and would say, well, Reza can, can, can say that he has some privileges, and they're absolutely right, and that they don't feel safe in this community. And I think they have every right to feel that way and I, I, I would agree with them. I'm not going to tell them how to feel. If they don't feel safe, they don't feel safe, and we have a problem. I'm sad to hear about the problems with the Sudanese-American youngsters, because I recall back in the late 90s, and you know what? We're just a couple old men talking about the 90s now, Reza. Just, I want you to understand that. But I remember those times and the first wave of immigrants from Sudan. I remember interviewing mothers who came here without husbands because they'd been killed in the war. I remember one family in particular on Wilmot Street, and they were all very young, so they would be the age of young adults now. And they were all so wonderful, and I, and I always remember them with fondness. And then, you won't mention his name, but the police chief, for those that aren't aware, was uh, Mike Chitwood, and the city manager was Bob Ganley back then. And I remember those problems. There was lots of cultural stereotyping, and there were problems with cultural mores from their homelands being transferred over to America and causing all sorts of trouble. Mm. And Chitwood was a, a cowboy, and I would, I would say, this is me saying this, a real jerk, and I was glad to see him go. So I'm glad that the relationship has improved with City Hall and the police, but I'm also concerned about the word from the street that the Sudanese youth are having trouble. And to the police department's credit, uh, they introduced community policing. What a lovely concept to have community members and, or police officers who would actually get to work and live in the communities and create relationships with us, uh, with the neighbors. So the community policing program in Portland has been extremely successful. So what we see is really 
a, a positive result of, of this this particular program that uh, might have been started in Portland as a pilot project. I'm not sure, but we were so excited when that came about, and it's been going on. So, but prior to start of starting that program, uh, the Portland police officers would quote-unquote, invade the community, a community such as Sagamore Village, to arrest and pull out these young Southeast Asian kids out of their home and accuse them of belonging to gangs and there were shooting incidents and the shooting being done by, by, by the officers. So, again, we've come a long way It's and we hope it gets better and better. So we're talking about the institutional, uh, the police, I've been for a long time now reporting on the the far right, the hard right wing in Maine. And I've reported on what I see as fear mongering and the myth by some of these nut jobs and lunatics that our new Mainers who are Muslim have come here with the intent of setting up Sharia law. What are your thoughts on the Sharia law takeover of America? Well, but before I talk about that uh, the fear-mongering this time targeting Muslims. I have to remind all of us of that this has been going on in Maine again for hundreds of years, except the targets does being attacked have changed. So I would say these are the same people who, who claim that the Catholics coming to the Roman Catholics, the Irish and, and the French Canadians and and Italians who were coming to Maine as 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 the refugees and immigrants back then could not possibly be good Americans. I mean, many, many Mainers have forgotten that Maine has a troubled history, has had a troubled history with immigrants from other countries, from outside of the United States. So these are the same people, perhaps they might have been in some cases their own ancestors, who burned down a Roman Catholic church in Bath, Maine. And because to them, the Catholics were not even Christians. And then they went after Jews in Maine, went after the Chinese. So it is unfortunate, but uh, it's part of our troubled history. What about the thought of Muslims coming with the intent of Sharia law in Maine? So it's important to to first uh, shine the light on this uh, accusation, the, the Sharia law. Sharia law is really, in reality, is a non-binding set of uh, rules and laws, and uh, which, uh, by the way, are not being practiced in all Muslim societies or Muslim countries. Majority of uh, today's Muslim countries have uh, the Western law. Or in some cases, they have a mixture of Sharia law and the Western laws. And then there might be three or four countries out of the 30, 39 Muslim countries that, that uh, practice Sharia law. So it's really such a misconception in, in, in the U.S. that they imagine that all Muslim countries have Sharia laws and people walk around cutting each other's arms or stoning going on. In reality, we we only have had that in uh, Saudi Arabia and and, and in Iran, and uh, two countries which are uh, there is no separation of state and church, and and, and they practice uh, extreme 
uh, interpretation of Islam. In case of Iran, the Shia Islam, and in case of Saudi Arabia, it's the Wahhabism, the very extreme version of Sunnism. So all that to say that it, it, when, when as Muslims we hear about this accusation, we really laugh because even in Muslim countries, Sharia hasn't happened, Sharia law has not been implemented. And how would a city councillor, and I'm referring to accusations that uh, came about in Lewiston community once this young, brilliant, wonderful Somali woman was running for the seat to be the city councillor, Sophia Khaled, 23-year-old college graduate who worked at L.L. Bean while going to school, paying for her own education. And uh, so she was accused of, if she were to be elected, she would introduce Sharia law in Lewiston, Maine. So that explains why, as Muslims, we find this really funny. And uh, we think they're joking, because how would one person or two persons, the entire city council in Lewiston, Maine, uh, bring Sharia law to that community? <laughs> if, in fact, in a Muslim country with almost the entire population being Muslim, that hasn't happened. So, and never mind that in the United States, we still have, thankfully, check and balance, uh, the system of check and balance, and we have the independent courts and independent media, should they survive. And, uh, and, and yet, some fear that Sharia law is coming to the United States. I don't understand that. I mean, what would happen to the Supreme Court, to the other courts, to judges? How would you get them to agree? So this is the really, this is the sense of, paranoia that, that that some Americans have always experienced and have really found easy scapegoats in people who look different, who sound different, who have come from away. And, and again, I would go back to the history of Maine, that, that the Know Nothing Party supporters burned down a Roman Catholic church in Bath, Maine, and they would accuse Jews of this and that, and hotels and resorts in Maine would not offer accommodation to Jewish uh, visitors for years. And uh, so we, we are, as, as historians, if you read the history of this state and this country carefully, you would know that you've always had this group of extremists and zealots who engaged in this xenophobia activities, and they're basically very paranoid. I mean, these are the people who really think that the earth is flat. So <laughs> you, you lose the argument. I mean, the moment I, I try to engage some of them when they write to me, send me emails, usually it's hate mail, but I, I respond and I try to engage them because this is about my own safety and the future of this estate, which I really love, that I want to tell, I want to educate them. Can we have a civil conversation? We don't have to agree all the time. And yet, how, how could you engage them when they don't even believe in science? And so that's why you kind of, you lose the argument. So I hope this answers your question, but the Sharia law is not coming to the U.S. It's <laughs> not even, it's not going to be the laws in the Muslim countries where, where you have 80 to 110 million Muslims, and the government is, 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 Islam is the official religion, yet Sharia is not there. 
official legal system, and for good reason. Well, you talk about the know-nothings, burning the Catholic Church down. I think of the modern, current state legislators who believe in Sharia law takeover. For instance, Larry Lockman of Washington County. He's only been in Maine since 1975. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Reza. I'm remembering uh, Muslims in Maine as far back as the early 1900s. Am I remembering that correctly? They were in Bitterford working in textile mills. Is that true? Absolutely. The first group of Muslims... They were Albanians, and mistakenly, mistakenly, they were called Turks, came to Biddeford, Maine. In fact, they were recruited as textile designers. So unlike the other immigrants who came to work in the mills because they were poor, uh, these uh, gentlemen were recruited because they were the best textile designers in the world. So there was this uh, vibrant community of early Muslims in Biddeford, Maine, it's possible the first mosque in the United States, that there's an argument over that, but it's possible that the first mosque in the United States was built in Biddeford, and uh, they had their own mosque, their own part of the cemetery, which still exists, by the way, three dozen gravestones with, with Muslim signs and names. And, uh, and sadly, the community vanished once uh, in famous Spanish flu arrived in May. But we go, we go before that. This state rep hasn't read the history of this country to understand why Thomas Jefferson had his own copy of uh, the Quran, Islam's holy book. He is unaware of, of letters being exchanged between George Washington and Muslim rulers of then. He's ignorant of the historical fact that the first country to recognize and welcome the United States, the independent, the newly born republic to the international community was not a Western country. It was a Muslim country, Morocco. Morocco was the first country to recognize the new and young republic and welcome it to the international community and offer support, by the way. We always think that the United States was this mighty superpower. Back then, it was a young republic struggling to be accepted into the international community. And uh, so there is this rich history of uh, Muslims arriving in this land and uh, in the new world prior to the birth of the republic. We have Muslims who fought and died in the revolutionary wars. We have Muslims who died because they loved America and, and fought for America during the Civil War. It's a rich history. American, Muslims have been part of the American narrative and the story for centuries. There's so many rich, rich stories. And, and so to hear some people, the, uh, let's call them the intolerant Americans, saying, well, they are coming here to take over. If Muslims wanted to take over America, they had many, many opportunities to do so. 25% of all the slaves, Africans, were stolen from the communities, kidnapped and brought here in chains, were Muslims. And there are now books, documentaries about them, the contribution to the land that they loved so much, and all the way to 
to contemporary times that Muslims continue to die for America. Muslims continue to be in the U.S. Army and, and make the ultimate sacrifice. So we've been, we've been part of this narrative. We've been part of the American story for centuries. And, and uh, the modern alphabet we use in this country, the early Muslims gave it to the world. So, and yes, there's this, yet there's this level of intolerance and hostility. And so again, it's, it's, then they haven't read the history, the blind and deaf to the contribution of other cultures. I would include the Jewish culture, the Indian culture, the Egyptian, the Muslim culture, and to the world civilization. Uh, so it, it is unfortunate, but totally understood. And we talk about uh, these guys are not aware of the historical nature, but even the contemporary nature, the influx of Muslims and other African refugees to Lewiston and Auburn has transformed. I would say saved Lewiston and Auburn. And that's the big city for me. I live in Western Maine now. I go to Lewiston and Auburn as the big city. It's a vibrant place, uh, very colorful. The front street is busy. Yet there's still a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. Any thoughts on how we can change that? Well, let's talk about Lewiston, Maine. I remember I was here when the first group of Somali immigrants and other immigrants from other parts of Africa started to arrive in Lewiston urban communities. And I had friends who told me that the rate of crime would go up. There would be lots of drugs. There would be acts of terrorism. And years later, what do we see? That Lewiston's rate of crime has dropped and the community is doing well. The downtown is vibrant with many stores and new businesses being opened, run and managed by, by immigrants. And, uh, and the story continues. And yet there's still some anti-Muslim sentiment. Yes. And would that go away? I doubt it. They're not interested in data. They're not interested in those who uh, are engaged in Islamophobia, are not interested to hear the facts that of all the immigrants in the United States, and as it is immigrants uh, per capita have seemed to be better educated than average Americans, within all the immigrant groups, Muslims are the most well-educated. Within the Muslims, this is fascinating, within the Muslim communities, there's a subgroup, the Pakistani Muslims, who are the most educated of all and most generous. They donate their donations to charitable organizations are in billions of dollars in the United States. So we need to talk about that. We need to talk about how uh, hungry, the Somali immigrant kids are for higher education, how they have managed to educate themselves against all odds, poverty, English being the second language, uh, lack of access to, to the same resources that, that English-speaking Native Americans seem to have, and they're doing so well. We've got now doctors, dentists, surgeons, 
judges, lawyers coming out of this community. And, and the magic is going to continue. It's, it's just the beginning. And they are, they have transformed Lewiston, uh, already in a positive way, but that's just the beginning of the story. And again, is, is that a surprise? No. The Irish, the Italians, the, the Roman Catholics, the French Canadians did it already. So this is the central uh, plot of the American story. And so we could fear our neighbors and, uh, and suspect them of being un-American and make these false arguments that, uh, well, they cannot possibly be good Americans. We said the same thing about Jews, by the way. We said the same thing about Roman Catholics in the past. Uh, and now it's impossible even to think how America would, would be without the contribution of the Jewish population, without the contribution of the, uh, the Catholics, without uh, the contribution of African Americans. So again, we, we could fear that, or we could become a decent uh, nation and, and talk about what we have done to Native Americans, that how we live in a stolen land and how to address that. And, and stolen land that was built with the stolen labor. So these are the things we should be talking about rather than accusing Muslims uh, of, of trying to bring Sharia and converting all of us or killing us all. If they wanted to do that, then there should not be a single Christian in Spain because Muslims ruled over Spain for three, 400 years. They ruled over India for a few centuries. And yet in today's India, they are gorgeous, beautiful, ancient temples, Hindu temples, Buddhist temples, uh, great Catholic churches, very, very old synagogues. So I don't think Muslims have been intolerant, with quite a few exceptions, of course. They ruled over India for a few hundred years. And they didn't go around converting everyone by force. And then they were in Spain, they were in other parts of the world. And uh, because to Muslims, and this might be, uh, this might be shocking to those who know nothing about Islam or, or are really, or have some, they have been brainwashed to think Muslims are the enemy. They would be shocked to hear that Muslims believe that Christians and Jews are the people of the book, Ahl Kitab in Arabic, meaning that they're already, they're already on the right path because they have their own prophets, they have their own holy scriptures, and as such, they need not, uh, there's no need to convert them. So, <laughs> so there's this whole false notion that Muslims go around Killing you or converting you is, is that, is just false. And that has to be kind of resisted. That kind of uh, knowledge and, and should be transferred to people who choose to fear their, their new neighbors. I'm hoping that the new leaders that we're seeing come out of this movement are indicative of the people who are going to be leading our country. And then perhaps we're going to be able to have these real honest conversations about our history as Americans, how bad that was. And also maybe dispelling a lot of these myths of the other. 
I'd like to switch the topic, though. Can we talk about COVID-19 a little bit? How would you say the pandemic has impacted Maine's refugees and, and immigrants? Sadly, that's where the bad news seems to be, that, that persons of color, and that would include African-Americans, who have lived here for, for centuries in Maine and those who have come in the past few years, uh, although they make up uh, almost 20% of the population, a very small percentage of the population make, when it comes to dying of COVID-19 virus, they make up some 25%. So one out of four, one out of five of those who have died in Maine uh, has been a person of color. And that is shocking. And because there's always been a disparity in terms of access to healthcare when it comes to persons of color. We've seen this in communities across the country that, that African Americans are dying in larger numbers than white Americans because of the COVID-19. The disparity in access to healthcare, uh, disparity in terms of having access to the right information, to resources, have resulted in these communities paying a larger price. In fact, one argument for this protest, it goes beyond police brutality. This is about institutional racism. This is about people who don't have access to healthcare. So the same argument applies to immigrants and new Mainers in Maine. So many immigrant uh, community leaders are addressing that. They're going around uh, sharing information, accurate information given to us by CDC and working really hard to ensure that, that, that new Mainers, our new neighbors would understand that this is serious and then helping them to access the, the right kind of care. So it is destroying the community. It is, they have initially, there were rumors such as, well, this virus is not going to impact uh, people of certain race, and they tended to be false rumors, but meanwhile, people did not follow the instructions given to them by the CDC, by, by healthcare professionals, by the experts. And, and so, again, the community is, is paying a price. It has to be addressed. It has to be stopped. And uh, because, again, when it comes to COVID-19, guess what? We have discovered that if one member of the community uh, is infected, he or she is a risk to the other communities that we are in this together. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true. If I wear a mask, I'm, I'm doing that out of respect to protect my neighbor, new or old, poor or rich, white or black. It doesn't matter. So I expect my neighbor to do the same and wear a mask to protect uh, not only me, but, but their own uh, family members and friends. So this has to be addressed. So the news is not good. It's, it's, it's really we are saddened to hear so many of our uh, community members dying. I'm wondering if those numbers that are higher, and I've also heard, I mean, that number about four times is likely to die of COVID, but also that 
Mainers of color are 10 times more likely to contract the virus than white Mainers because of their low-wage frontline jobs. They're working in the hospitals. They're working in the food factories. We saw what happened at Barber Foods. They're working in nursing homes. These new Mainers are often working what we're now calling frontline jobs. You're absolutely right. And that's what I meant by, I should have said, economic disparity. And uh, in terms of different kinds of disparities, you're absolutely right. They make up uh, a larger, in terms of percentage, than others, a part of what we now call the essential workers. So I have students who work uh, to pay for the uh, for the cost of education. They pay in, they they work in two or three uh, so-called nursing homes, retirement communities. These are uh, low-paying part-time positions, but the college students seem to like them. So they they, they spend the night. They, they, it's an overnight kind of uh, graveyard shift that 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 you spend your night taking care of uh, people who live there. And you're not a nurse. You're just really basically uh, being there as uh, as a staff. And uh, so that is a risky place to be at because you are in one uh, retirement community working there and then and then you pack and go to, to another one. So you are increasing your risk of uh, contracting the virus. And the other one, Barbara Food, is, is really a good example. Now it's called Tyson Food. But for all I care, it can be called anything. But the, the reality of it is that uh, that um, the the workers are being put at risk. They don't have the same privilege that I enjoy personally. That I can work from home, and many other people who could work from home, they have jobs that that they they could do it from, remotely. These are the people who go to grocery stores and and doctor shelves are there to help the customers, they bag your food, and uh, they work here and there as, again, as so-called essential workers, and they're paying the price. So we need to, we need to be mindful of them as we're fighting this, uh, this pandemic, that they are members of our communities. And by the way, <laughs> not all of them. Are, are new Mainers. Majority of them are low-income Mainers. These are hard-working, good people of Maine who, if given the choice or option, if they can afford it, they rather stay at home and not contract the virus, but they have to. The, the economic necessity of, of having to leave your house and go and work at risky jobs and at times not even protected, not given the the protection gear that you require uh, would, again, put you in that position that not only you are at risk, but your family members. Add to that the fact that, that many low-income mainers, regardless of where they were born, uh, live in households where they don't have the luxury of uh, maintaining social distance. I mean, they might live in a cramped two-bedroom apartment, five or six of them, young children. So you could see how the story is unfolding. And, uh, but, but to most people who enjoy their privileges and in some cases are blinded by the 
layers of privileges, um, they are surprised to hear that, that some poor people are dying in larger numbers compared to others. Well, I don't think they want to die, but they're there doing the jobs to, to ensure that we get our food and this and that. And, and it's now our duty to, to, to ensure that, that they are safe. So very sad. I'm hoping uh, from this pandemic that we see revolution, that we see fair wages for everyone, and that we put value on all the jobs of especially the working class. State of Maine's state of emergency and shutdown, I have a question for you. I've had several interviews with folks who complain about the tyranny of Governor Janet Mills and how she's operating as a quote unquote dictator. And then I bring up that if Rick Savage of Sunday River Brewing isn't in jail, then obviously we're not living under a dictatorship. You, however, are a person who has lived under an oppressive regime. I'm hoping I'm getting your history right, but as a Kurd, your village, your hometown in Kurdistan in Iran was destroyed during the war between Iran and Iraq. And also, you went off to college in India. And if I'm remembering this correctly, you were imprisoned for writing poetry in Kurdish. Absolutely. You got it all right. Every, every detail of it, except I, I was in jail, uh, not for writing bad poetry, because that could be a crime, but <laughs> for opposing the Iran-Iraq war. So I was an activist and a student in college, and, and that's why I was uh, in solitary confinement, because I, I was leading a movement to bring the war to, to an end the massacre of innocents on, on both sides of the borders. I wasn't with any of the governments. I was just subjecting to this war continuing. So I have some advice for our friends who, who whatever happens to them, they can't get a haircut, and all of a sudden it becomes a tyranny. Uh, this is They have never lived in an oppressive regime as many of us have, and, and for that I'm glad. But i got to warn them that, that they have to be careful when they use these terms so loosely and carelessly. In Maine, we are blessed to have a governor surrendered by, by wise people who advise her. I don't think it's the governor Mills who makes that final decision. I think she, what she does, which I really admire and respect, is that she listens to the experts in the, in the public health field. People go to college, people educate themselves, people work very, very hard to become experts in their own fields. And what we see nationally, sadly, is that the people in power who don't see any value in listening to the advice of experts. Governor Mills, on the other hand, listens to to such advisors and, and acts on them. So this is not a tyranny. This is what she's supposed to do as a public servant. She's picked up the right people to give her advice, and she listens to them. Reza, I think we're just about out of time, but I was hoping you could help us out with some advice to Mainers who want to get involved and help our fellow new Mainers, whether it be in this time of COVID-19 and beyond. What can we do to help? What groups do you recommend we join? Well, the number of uh, immigrant-run and immigrant-managed uh, nonprofits, including uh, Gateway Community Center, which is which has offices in Portland, Biddeford, and Lewiston, 
the Greater Portland uh, Immigrant Welcome Center, which just lost its leader, co-founder, uh, is another example. So, uh, so there are quite a few organizations and and that that are working really hard to find ways to uh, help and support new Mainers. I admire them all. There are more organizations that I'm not. I'm sadly I'm. I'm not remembering, and I'll get into trouble later for that. <laughs> but really, walking to a new manor, uh, your neighbor, and and talking to them, and and offering your support, and if they're elderly, offering to go and do food shopping for them. If they're young, finding out if they need a shoulder to to lean on. If they need someone to talk to. Mental health is an issue for all of us. Young and old, uh, new mainers or old mainers, we all now need to talk to one another. Social distancing, as it's being said again and again, shouldn't mean that we cut out all kinds of uh, relationships and contacts. We still need to look at each other as, as human beings, as members of the same family. And, and as mainers, we, we, we kind of, we, this, this is what we're good at. We don't like being too close to one another, even during normal times, mainers don't like don't like that. But we we always jump at any given chance to help our neighbor. So this is one of those opportunities that we really need to step up to the plate and reach out and make sure our neighbors from wherever they are, whatever race they come from, are okay. Ladies and gentlemen. A long time ago, it was written that man shall not live by bread alone. In this often quoted line from the Bible, bread is merely a symbol of all material values. And although we in America have the greatest material advantages in the world, they are not enough to bring us complete happiness. We must find that happiness in our spiritual as well as our material lives, in faith as well as bread. In America, one of our most precious heritages is the right to worship as we please to know the spiritual pleasures of our churches and synagogues. The doors of your places of worship stand open to you and your religious leaders will welcome you to their services. They also offer you personal and family guidance and the opportunity to become a firm part of your community. Through our churches and synagogues, that community and the families within it can find stability. And as an individual, you can find the peace that only religion can bring. Thus, the religious organizations of America invite you to find yourself through faith and come to church this week. Good night. I want to thank Reza Jalali for joining us today. Thank you, Reza. I learned a heck of a lot from the fella, whom, like I said at the get-go, is a pretty smart guy. Going to be thinking about this interview for a while, especially how he predicted that the positive impact on Maine, by our new neighbors, by our new Mainers, has only just begun. We want to hear your pandemic stories. Do you have a tale to tell? Are you aware of a hero, or a helper, a devil, or a dirtbag? Drop me a line at crash at crashberry.com. Thanks for listening.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.